You can't give people what they want. It has to be what you want. That was Don Draper, or perhaps more accurately, Matthew Weiner. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is The Midnight Disease. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Shure SM7B. And if I sound surprised, it's because I am. I have a tortured relationship with this stupid microphone. I don't know if you guys follow the microphones that podcasters are using in YouTube videos as closely as I do, but this is perhaps the most famous podcast microphone, radio microphone, music microphone ever built up there with the also sure sm58 what are we doing microphone history right now anyway this mic you heard jesse thorne talk about it in the midnight disease episode that we did with him it is widely thought of as the most voice-friendly microphone ever designed particularly for spoken word and I have been trying to get a good sound out of it on my voice for literally 20 years. And I've never been able to do it. What comes out instead to my ear when I talk into the Shure SM7B? Harsh sibilance, thin bass, swooshy, ill-defined mid-range. Drives me nuts. Because this microphone at its best, on the voices of so many radio hosts and podcast hosts that I admire, the bass, it can be as smooth as the smooth back of a dolphin slipping into the still, moonlit waters of the sea. The highs can be like, like a desert sunrise. Just the right amount of shimmer, just the right amount of dusky orange haze that can happen with this microphone it can give narration this deeply natural quality and i have this story in my head that until i can figure out how to use this tool and achieve those results i'll never be a real podcaster i'll never be a real broadcaster i actually lose sleep about this which is pathetic. Now, why are we talking about this? I promise there's a reason. You want to talk about legit podcasters. My guest on the show today is Avery Truffleman. If you are not aware, which uh, would indicate that you are living beneath a podcast rock, Avery is the host and creator of Articles of Interest, just one of the most acclaimed and, more importantly, lovely podcasts currently running. Uh, it has been celebrated in all corners of podcast journalism, and rightly so. And if you don't know, Articles of Interest tells the stories of the garments that we wear and that we see around us. These are the psychological and sociological origins of things like knockoffs, 
clothing that bears the logos and marks of Louis Vuitton or Gucci, but was not actually made by those companies and is instead a remix of their designs by independent artists, which obviously brings up all kinds of complicated, thorny issues about copyright and ownership and culture and access. That's the kind of story that you're going to hear Avery go really, really deep on in an episode of Articles of Interest, but it's not going to be high-level and conceptual. It's going to be character-driven. Avery is going to reliably find a person at the center of this complex, thorny issue of the kind that the knockoffs episode brings up, and she's going to use that person's story to give you an understanding of this thing that you might otherwise see and make passing note of, but not pause to consider the deeper resonance of. Uh, And that this visual element of what a person is wearing is actually connected to some of the deepest questions in our culture. And this is the thing. Avery will do that with this narration style and writing style that is curious, reverent, playful, sincere, empathetic, profound, joyful, and she will mix the episode in collaboration with the rest of the team that works on that show with music and sound design elements that are transportive in this way that I'm I'm struggling to give words to. It's like the thing that comes to mind is a craft cocktail. (laughs) So imagine... You go to a bar, and this bar has their own spin on an old-fashioned. I'm probably thinking about old-fashions because I talked about Don Draper at the beginning of the episode. And this bar makes their old-fashioned, yes, with bourbon, yes, with Angostura bitters, yes, with an orange peel. But those bitters are house-made, and... They're also cutting that bourbon with some kind of rinse in the glass that maybe you don't even know is there. And they're using a certain kind of ice. And it's being presented in a rocks glass that is chilled but not frosted. And from the first sip, the drink goes down so easily, but it tastes better And the flavor is familiar, but you're tasting it in a different way. That's what it's like to listen to an episode of Articles of Interest in my experience. Smooth yet bold. Now, Avery has also done a lot of other work that is similarly impressive. She is the host of Nice Try, the Vox podcast. She, of course, worked at 99% Invisible for many years and uh, was also the host of The Cut, the New York Magazine podcast, for some time. But the reason that I am so consumed with these thoughts about authenticity and true voice as I prepare you to listen to this interview is that before we started recording, I used this piece of software called Riverside for remote interviews. Uh, It's basically a video chat platform that is optimized for podcasting. And... We're getting set up, and Avery notices this bracelet that I wear. It is a silver bracelet with some kind of distressed markings on the surface and a turquoise stone in the center. And she says, cool bracelet. 
And we start talking about it. And all of a sudden, I find myself telling the story of how this bracelet came to be on my wrist, which is that it literally came to me in a dream. And I told my fiance, Adrian, about this dream. And Adrian said, I think that bracelet, if it's anywhere in the world, it's in Santa Fe. And then in an unrelated series of events, we found ourselves in Santa Fe. Adrian walked into the first jewelry shop that she saw and texted me and said, come here right away. I found it. And when I got there, she pointed to a display case and there was the bracelet, the one I'd had the dream about. I asked the clerk if I could try it on. I put it on. It fit perfectly. And now I have the dream bracelet on my wrist. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm telling this to Avery and I'm like, hold on, what? I am here to interview you. <laughs> How did this happen? How did I end up telling you this story from my life that's very important to me? Oh, you're clearly a master at this. And then, of course, I indulged this momentary fantasy where there's a Articles of Interest episode about men's jewelry and Avery starts it out by saying, Sam Dingman is a dreamer. And then I tell this dumb story about my bracelet. Anyway, as I had this realization that Avery had just done with me the thing that she has done with countless other people she's interviewed, I thought to myself, ah, that, that was a technique. That was a ploy. That was, that was one of her moves as an artist. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but, you know, master craftspeople at their chosen art form have their techniques. And I thought perhaps uh, I have just experienced one of Avery's. But as we began talking... I came to realize that her noticing of the bracelet and asking about the bracelet was something much more genuine and much more complex. And Avery is not losing sleep about what microphone she is using. Avery is sitting down behind the microphone to get at something deeper. She is not trying to imitate the dolphin slipping into the depths. She is the dolphin diving. All right, now that the intro has reached the point of ill-conceived dolphin metaphors, uh, I think it's probably a sign that we should wrap it up so that you don't stop listening before we get to the interview. One quick piece of context before we start. I mentioned Riverside a moment ago, and... Riverside does this thing before you start recording, where when you hit the record button, it counts down. Five, four, three, two, one. And then you start rolling like a real producer would do if you were sitting in a recording studio. But this is obviously virtual, so I like to pretend for myself that there is a robot producer doing that countdown. Why am I telling you that? Because it is important context for the first few moments of the conversation, which we will mercifully get to now on WALT. One thing I realized recently, uh, since you're a fellow old pro of Riverside, is that... uh, it, one does not have to be silent during the robot countdown. Yeah, I didn't know that. Although I do like it as, because um, like the other thing is you don't have to collect room tone. And I find that room tone is such a intimacy building exercise in interviews. So I do like also not talking during the countdown to just be like, 
Because I feel like if you if you tell people that if you show people that silence is possible, like if you you know they're only going as fast or as slow as you tell them they can go. So if you're like, it's fine. We can also just look at each other. Yeah, you're like sending a message. So I I kind of love the ritual of the countdown. I do feel like it's replaced the the room tone silence together. I'm so glad you brought up this room tone element because one thing I have often found, and I'd be curious to know if you feel the same way, is you get to ostensibly the end of the interview and you're like, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of these things. But sometimes there's like some emotional note that didn't happen or something that the person wasn't quite as forthcoming about as you wish they had been. And you say, could we just sit for 10 seconds in silence? And you sit in silence and literally at second 10, they open their eyes and they're like, you know, actually there's one thing I didn't say. And, and that's when you get the perfect quote that you have been seeking. That's so funny. I mean, that's beautiful. And it's also so not my experience because I just don't do, no, 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 no. Just because of the kinds of stories I do. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. sure that would be the case if I was actually asking people about emotional shit. Mm. But the interesting thing is I'm never, I'm never like, tell me about what it was like putting your child up for adoption. It's always (laughs) like, let's talk about this sweater. And do you know what I mean? And, and the emotions come through, but it's not like I'm looking. Like, if any emotion comes through, I'm not looking for it. It's kind of like when I was just asking you about your bracelet, you mm. know? I was like, oh, that was a really good story. And you, like, get so much out of it. Uh-huh. But I wasn't expecting it. I was just like, cool bracelet. Right. And so I feel like any human story that comes out of it is 100% an accident. And I admire people who can sort of go angling and digging. Like, I'm editing a project right now for the LA Times that's, like, deeply, deeply personal. Mm. And every time they give me the tape, I'm like, whew, I couldn't be me. Like, I could not, I am in awe of it. And I, I, that's not how I roll. So I'm amazed that you can do that. Huh. That's fascinating to me. That's fascinating to me. Um, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but since we're talking about it, um, one of the big things that I really enjoyed about moving out of, from the first season of Articles of Interest into subsequent seasons is that... I felt very distinctly more emotion in in the second season in particular. Um, oh, wow. thank you. It was like you really stepped into the frame, not in a distracting way, um, but in a way where I felt your affinity for the, the kind of the central characters in the stories in a much more present way, which rationally makes sense because it's your second time making a season of the show. And so maybe there's more of an emotional fluency with the material, but I also couldn't help noticing, like you started doing this thing in the, um, in the knockoffs episode, for example, you give Dapper Dan the last word of the story where previously in all the other episodes, you have put this kind of perfect button on everything. But in that one, you let him say, let it be. And then, and then the music comes in and, uh, it was so, I mean, there's so much emotion in the way that he said it, but the emotion behind Let It Be in the context of that story is also so profound. So I, I'm I'm just interested to hear you say you don't think of your work necessarily as emotionally present because it, it feels very emotionally present. Oh my God, Sam, thank you so much. Like, thank you for that very thoughtful listen. Oh, absolutely. That's like the greatest gift. Thank you. I really do. Well, I felt like there was a big change 
really in between season one and season two, mm -hmm. because season one, you know, you can tell I'm like, what are clothes? <laughs> like, I'm like, what is, <laughs> what is this? You know, I, I really didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. And, um, I really walked away kind of hating clothes afterward, like really hmm. understanding, uh, how wasteful they are, you know, um, just suddenly noticing clothes in a way that I hadn't before mm -hmm. and just like looking at all the shop windows and being like, what is this shit? Like, we don't need this shit. And like <laughs> getting up mad about it. Mm -hmm. And also really like so many of those histories, I mean, really cloth is a story of oppression, you, you know, yeah. like it, it all comes back to slavery, especially in the United States. It just, mm -hmm. it's like all kinds of levels of bad. And so after season one, I was like, mm, ooh, I didn't like that. And then I wouldn't have made a season two if I wasn't forced to. I, not forced, hmm. but Roman was like, you should make a season two. Yeah. And I actually call it Fleabag Syndrome because I remember Phoebe Waller-Bridge <laughs> also didn't want to make a second season of Fleabag. And mm -hmm. the second season was so much better. Huh. And, you know, because there's often this uh, mythology of like the sophomore slump or like how can you follow, you know, your follow-up album. But I was thinking about her a lot. And um, so I was like, okay, maybe it'll be an interesting exercise because clearly like being made to do it, she had to like force herself into things she didn't want to do. So I feel like you can tell in season two, I'm sort of like trying to entertain myself and I'm yeah. trying to find the humanity in the clothes more. And see, the way I always put it to myself is like season one made me hate clothes. Season two made me love them again. Mm. And it's sort of, you know, that meme of, of like galaxy brain. I feel like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you get to the first level and you're like, clothes are important. You get to the second level and you're like, clothes are oppressive. You get to the third level and you're like, clothes are divine. And then I feel like you get to the third level of articles of interest. And you're like, clothes are everything. <laughs> right. Like, ah. And so now I'm like back on board the fashion train yeah. kind of in a full circle way. But I think I started it like, I don't know. I was going to sound, this is going to, this is going to be the proof that I spent seven years in the Bay area. Like, do you ever, do you ever mess around with like tarot cards? Yes. Every Sunday. Seriously? Yes, yes, yes. Wait, no way. I, I welcome any and all tarot card commentary. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Like you draw a card for yourself? Yes, yes. My, uh, I, I, I need to give credit to my fiance for this. Um, it was at her urging, but uh, every Sunday we we pull a card and it kind of helps to set a mental environment for the week, I guess is, is how I would put it. Not that it's prescriptive, not that it's, um, definitive, but it's uh, yeah. just kind of a preliminary framework. It what it really is, I find, is, is it's like a way of reflecting on all the bees that are in my bonnet, yes, and which ones maybe are feeling uh, buzziest and one hundred percent, one hundred percent, and that's why I like prefer it to say whatever astrology or anything else that's more prescriptive, <laughs> that it's more in interpretive. Not Sorry if you're into astrology. I'm not not into it. I just, no, no, I, I think tarot is fascinating. I was laughing because I was like, what if you said, that's why I prefer it to therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, it's like, it's funny because of all the like woo-woo stuff. Yeah. It's kind of the least woo. It's like the most Jungian. You mm -hmm. look at these things like you would look at art, mm -hmm. you know, or like you look at anything. Yeah. And, um, but I, you know, I think about the first card in the major arcana, mm -hmm. which is the fool. And you, you know, you do need to start out as a bit of a fool to go on a mission. And I definitely started articles of interest being like, la la la, what are clothes? <laughs> and then, you know, you go through the major arcana and what 
you end up with is the world, which is like another sort of yeah. encompassing state of confusion, which I suppose this is a more like patchouli-centered version of the galaxy brain meme. But I, I do feel, not like I've ended <laughs> my journey in any way, but I, I do feel like I needed to find the the humanity just to reckon with all the badness. Like when I talked to Dapper Dan, I mean, I'd read his biography. So I like knew what the story was and I knew he'd be willing to talk about it. Like when I was a kid, my mom got a magazine, she subscribed to a magazine called Daughters and it was all about like how to raise your daughter. <laughs> and I would steal it and like read it and then put it back on the mail table just to like know what tricks she was, <laughs> you know, going to employ to like raise me. That's amazing. And one trick that I remember seeing, I don't know if she ever actively like employed this, but uh -huh. um, they were like, if you want to talk about something serious with your daughter, do it in the car so that you're facing the same direction and okay. it's not confrontational. Okay. And that's why I kind of like doing stories about objects because I feel like we're both facing the same direction. <laughs> you know, I'm not even like, Dapper Dan, tell me about your life. I'm like, what are knockoffs, Dapper Dan? You know, like we're both looking at something else and that's a nice way to have an intense uh, conversation. Yeah, again though, this is super interesting to me because two things. One, in the first season, I have a strong experience of you in conversation with an idea. Yeah. Um, and in the second season, I have a strong sense of you in conversation with a person who is mm. connected to a specific story. And in the end, I'm left with a reframing of an idea, um, mm. which is a very different experience. And not to, not to challenge what you just said, but it's, it's interesting to hear you say that you think of it as, you know, you and you and the subject are sort of facing the same way because, like in the first episode of the second season, um, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to forget her name. I think it's, no, it's Linda. Linda. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of the most compelling parts of that episode is when she talks about getting into a place of disordered eating uh, out of a desire to um, fit into a certain type of clothing and, and fulfill a certain standard of glamour. And you share that that is an experience that you are familiar with. And right. all of a sudden, it, it's one of those you know, driveway moments, treadmill moments, whatever, where the story in the space of three sentences gets enormous. I guess I'm curious if when you were talking to Linda about those things, if you felt like it was a shift out of this familiar paradigm of we're talking about ideas or we're talking about things that are facing the same way. Like, uh, was that an experience for you of this is more human, this is more interactive, this is more emotional than I previously considered it to be. Yeah. I don't like to force myself into stories, mm -hmm. but I do find that if I am sort of implicated in the story that I should, mm -hmm. because I think I really resist the idea where you always have to start with the hook. Or, you know, it always begins with the host being like, here's me and here's why I'm telling this story or whatever. I think sometimes we rely on that a little too much. But on the other hand, I don't like when you don't know anything, anything, anything about the host. And that lends itself to this like myth of journalistic impartiality that doesn't exist. And it almost, <laughs> yeah, it just feels like um, I had an eating disorder. A lot of people did. Like I should say something. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
Or even when I was, the, the more I talked to people about prep school, I was like, oh, I should probably tell people I went to prep school. Like, mm -hmm. even though, mm -hmm. you know, like none of these things are um, things I wanted to like be like, let me say at the start, like this is, you know, yeah. th like this is who I am. But um, I don't know. It just would feel weird to, to, to narrate that and be like, isn't that strange? Like she had disordered eating right. and, and not be like, this happens all the time, like very easily. Well, it strikes me that what you're describing is a really important primer for me, I'll say, and anyone else who might be listening to this who is curious about doing this kind of storytelling and trying to answer the question of when to put yourself in the story, because it, it, it feels to me, and correct me if I'm uh, mischaracterizing this, but it feels to me like you're saying, well, the right time to do it is when it feels like it would be irresponsible not to, but not before. That's such a good way of putting it. Yes. Yes, exactly. And then I think you can do the opposite. I think there are people who try to like shoehorn their experience. Yes. <laughs> and, and like try to draw parallels. Yeah. And like, sometimes you just, you can't, you know, you shouldn't, you can't. Um, yeah. but yeah, when, when it's very obvious that when it feels like you're withholding and you're like, ah, I should say something like then, then say it. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting to me about what you said about this idea of, um, you sitting alongside the subject, both facing the same direction is one of the other things that happens in that particular moment in the, uh, the story we were just discussing, which I think is the first episode of season two. In that story in particular, you reference this quote that was very influential to you, which I hope I don't mangle, uh, where you say, knowledge kills glamour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my um, God. Wow. I haven't thought about this in a long time. Well, what was amazing, what was really, uh, I felt like that was a very galaxy brain moment for the show, because in a way, the whole show is knowledge kills glamour, mm. right? In that mm -hmm. you are removing the mask that conceals a lot of the backdrop for how garments come to be and how they come to attain certain significance. But the galaxy brain element of it is I feel pulled closer to those things, not further away. Like the knockoffs episode in particular, not to harp on it, um, no, that was big for me. I like love knockoffs now. Yeah. I used to be like, those are, those are gauche. I hate them. And then I suddenly found myself being like, I need a knockoff Gucci belt. I'm like, <laughs> I love them. I think they're great. Well, the part where he says, I think it, it I can't remember if it's you quoting him or, or, or if it's Dapper Dan who says, um, well, th think about what people of color have historically done with hip hop, right? Is we take a mainstream song that was intended for other people and we take certain parts of it and remix it and turn it into something else. And everybody looks at that and thinks that rules. Why is, why is it not the same thing with these garments? And I, I will never look at a, a, something that I suspect to be a knockoff again. I will, I will think of it as a remix. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, you know, it's funny. There's a line that I believe got cut because I think, you know, this is back when I was at 99PI and they were like, this is too woo-woo. And I would totally <laughs> leave it in now, left to my own devices. Right. But um, he said, another thing he said was he was like, symbols have always been important when you think of like the ankh or the evil eye and like the power of putting a symbol on a garment and like wearing a charm um, 
as a sign of wealth or good luck or prosperity. This is ancient. This is an eternal thing. And he said, like, those interlocking Gs, they don't belong to Gucci anymore. Like, those Ls and Vs, those don't belong to Louis Vuitton. Those have become signs of, like, wealth and well-being and good fortune. And then I have a pen pal who's incarcerated, and he sent me a letter, like, and the... the um, the stationery was like homemade Gucci stationery. Wow. And it's like, that is it. It's like, it's like putting, it's putting the symbol mm -hmm. that says like wealth, wellness, happiness. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's like, who are we to like protect those symbols or say that only certain people can have access to those symbols? Like there's something quite like when you, when you think about sort of the, the the eternal or ancient corollary to like wearing an outfit covered in logos. I mean, I'm so, it's funny, I'm so into them now. Mm -hmm. I'm so into them. Yeah. I love knockoffs, I love logos now. I like, uh -huh. I think they're sacred. I think they're holy. Okay, so since we've been talking about Tarot and the sacred and the holy, <laughs> um, this leads me to one of the big questions that I have for you and that I, is, uh, I'm always very excited to ask folks who do the kind of work that you do, which is, I noticed in the credits, uh, you go from saying, uh, Articles of Interest is made by myself, Avery Truffleman, to Articles of Interest is written and performed by. And the, and the use of performed uh, really grabbed me by the lapels and uh, made me want to ask, I, I suppose, two questions. One, what, what prompted that, the choice of that verb and two, do you think of what you do more as journalism or more as art? Or do you reject mm. that uh, continuum? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think about that all the time. I always am like very embarrassed when I have to introduce myself and be like, I'm a podcaster, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But I don't, I don't really identify as a journalist just because I'm not actually... I mean, I have to be very clear. I'm not in microfiche, you know? I'm not doing that kind of research. Like, I know the extents of my, my skill set, and I know where my limits are. And, for example, like, here, there was, like, a big gaping hole in the third season, which is all about preppy clothes. I was like, man, where's India in all of this? Like, Madras comes from India. Khaki comes from India. Polo comes from India. Like, where's India? And I was looking around, I was like, there is no book. There was no book about India's role in preppy clothes. And then I was just like, well, I cannot begin to firsthand amass this knowledge. And so I have to be very, like, I am in awe and I'm amazed by, like, real, real journalists and researchers. What I do is I, like, read books very thoroughly and, like, have good conversations. Uh -huh, and I'm very uh -huh. proud of my skill set. But I... I so I don't consider that like, it's a certain kind of journalism mm -hmm. that I think is more like akin to infotainment, unfortunately. I mean, again, I try to do as like thorough a job as I can, but I'm very rarely like hunting for, for facts. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I see my skill set as like drawing connections. I actually yes. like, don't have the desire to like go through microfiche because right. it's <laughs> too, it's like too granular. If I get caught up in the small stuff, I can't like pattern match with mm -hmm. all the other things. So... So yeah, I don't really see it as journalism. I would like to see it as art. But then again, you know, it's not like I'm making a painting. It's like I'm making a collage. Like I'm working with other people's 
stuff. So I have this internal argument all the time with just like, what is it? Because I am working with the medium of the truth. So I'm limited. I can't like create a world. I don't know why I said performed, but it just felt right. Just because I get so, um, how do I put this? When I first got into radio, first of all, I never thought I'd be on mic, you know, I'm sure like when you started a public radio station, you're like, cool, I'm just going to like read books for other people yeah. and like <laughs> write up briefings and like run the board for them, which is awesome. I was like, yes. this is a cool job. It's a joy. I want this job. Yeah. yeah, it's a joy. Mm -hmm. And so when I like started at 99% Invisible, I was like, cool, I'll like prep Roman and mm -hmm. like be behind the scenes. And I had never like done recording before and you'd think it would be the most fun part of a podcast just like blah 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 talk on the microphone <laughs> and I, I like hate it it's my least 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 favorite part really and it's funny because I feel like you know I procrastinate on writing I'm like oh I should write this thing I've been meaning to write it and then I really procrastinate on recording hmm. like there have been whole days where I'm like I need to go to the closet and record but I just don't want to because <laughs> it feels like a performance you have to like amp yourself up and uh -huh. be like okay especially because you spent you know months doing this research, you know, you have this pile of underlined books, all this work, you know, these documents full of, of, of notes, you know, pro tools, files that you've spent hours laboring over. And what does it all come down to? Like showtime, like time <laughs> for you to sell it. Like, yeah. what did you learn, Avery? It, so it feels like a test. It feels like a challenge and it does feel like a performance. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always just like, oh, like I'm tired today. Like, I don't want to. Yeah. Um, so I realized that like it was a performance and I didn't yeah. want, and I feel like there's also, um, this school of thought that's like trying to pretend like, oh, me, like, I just stammered this out. Like, I'm just casually here. <laughs> and I wanted to be like, no, it's not. Like, yeah. I wrote this. Like, I edited this so many times. Like, yeah. I'm going to perform it for you now. I performed it. Yeah. I'm so glad you gave this answer because what I felt listening to you say that was, I, I, I may have even silently mouthed, like, thank you. It, it, <laughs> it was so, what I felt is that you were being honest about something that most people who do this work are not honest about. I want to reflect back to you that, you know, you're saying that what you're doing is matching patterns and, um, it, you know, you're, you're telling stories, you're giving people an experience. Uh, I think what is happening in these pieces, even if it is hard to categorize, is really vital and is really important. And I think it's one of the great difficulties and conundrums and mysteries of our medium that we don't have a better word for it. And I'm so glad you said like, uh, that it, you hate saying the word podcaster. Actually, one of the questions I wrote down is like, what is your relationship to the word podcast, which we can come <laughs> back to. Um, it is this arrangement of ideas that delivers a very profound experience. Wow. Thank you. And the necessity at the end of the day for that particular kind of show is that someone has to deliver it. Someone's got to deliver it. Someone yeah. has to deliver it. And, it, <laughs> and it's so different than, than creative nonfiction in print because when we read creative nonfiction in print, we imagine that voice. Right. And when it's long form nonfiction audio, that voice has, is, 
something very specific. It is, it is your voice and people have an instantaneous relationship with that, an instantaneous reaction to that. And, and there's so much riding on the performance. So I was grateful that you said it that way for those reasons. And also because something that I feel like it, it gives the lie to in a, in a welcome way is in other shows that don't call it a performance the unspoken thing is I have definitively found the meaning that connects all these ideas. When the reality is you subjectively for you have arranged these ideas in a certain way and told us what it means to you. And that is valuable and significant and meaningful, but it is, it's like you said about the, the gap in knowledge that you were reckoning with in, in season three, like it's not the definitive answer. It is an arrangement of ideas that gets at something, some larger truth about this phenomenon. I don't know. It was just so fascinating to me to think about all of those things from the, the choice of this one word in the credits. Um, oh, thank you. And in this same vein, something that's very fascinating to me in looking into your background is that your parents met when they were at WNYC? Well, yeah, they didn't do what I do. My dad worked in public relations okay. at WNYC, okay. and my mom was head of classical music at WQXR. Okay. Um, so she recorded, she did live concert recording mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. Wow. And uh, yeah, but they, and I think they both dabbled, they both like produced things, but yeah, they were like radio people. So I'm wondering what, signals that gave to you about the potential of the medium? Because I was thinking about, like, for me, my love of radio comes from listening to baseball games with my dad. I love that. And so for me, I I instantly associated the radio with the idea of it is a vessel for good company. Wait, where are you from? What was your team? Uh, I'm from Northern Virginia. At the time, there were no Washington Nationals, so I'm uh, unfortunately a, a lifelong Baltimore Orioles fan. Just <laughs> 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 to a tough road to travel. Um, but that's the best. It's the best. It's it's so much better to be a fan of a team like that than it is to be, I will go on the record, uh, a fan of a team like the Yankees, where you have yeah. some expectation of success. <laughs> no, exactly. And also, like, what what we want is to want. Like yes. That's that's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's desire. We don't want knowledge. Knowledge kills glamour. You don't actually want the <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You don't, you don't want the thing. So anyway, but yeah, that's beautiful. But radio is a is what did you call it? Like a vector for company? Or yeah, beautiful. yeah, vessel for for good company. Oh, yeah. Um, which I didn't I didn't make up. I shouldn't say. Uh, I I got to interview actually John Miller at the play by play broadcaster recently. And that's his phrase that the job is, is to be good company. But I've just been thinking a lot about how that is my, that is my primal association with the radio. And I'm curious what your primal association with it was in a vacuum, but also how that association might have been informed by having parents who thought about it in a more complex way than others might. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool. Like my parents cut tape with a knife, you know, like they they were really, they were really in it. Um, I've always wanted them to teach me, but you know, I mean, like I'd have to record on tape and like, (laughs) you know, if you give a mouse a cookie, then you'd need like the tape deck and like the recorder. (laughs) Yeah. I wish I could watch them cut tape, but no, the radio is just like always, always on. I mean, that was my memory first thing. Mm -hmm. 
first thing in the morning, you know, before heading off to school, like radio on mom making coffee, mm -hmm. like in the car, radio on, like, mm -hmm. and it was a, and it wasn't music. It was news. And then it was also like, oh, turn to 1010 wins, get the traffic. Yeah. And my favorite story about this actually, um, I mean, I wasn't there, I wasn't school, but my mom during 9-11 she heard some neighbors talking, just like, oh, did you hear what happened on the news? And she immediately ran to the car and opened the car door and turned on the radio to like hear wow. rather than turning on the TV. Like <laughs> it was always like, what's on the radio? And I have to say, I mean, there was something to that, right? Because I do feel like radio is just more on the ground. You hear people being like, here's what we know. I'm talking to someone now. Um, it's less buttoned up than than the news. And you can sort of be be with people, like we're watching something unfold. You know, we're, you can hear people in real time. And also radio reporters can go places that cameras can't. And I also always loved that you just didn't know what anyone looked like, you know, <laughs> like who, <laughs> if I met Satirius Johnson, I wouldn't know it. You know, <laughs> like if I saw him on the subway, yeah. which is like, what does Lakshmi Singh look like? We do not know. Yeah. We do not know these things. So I loved that it was sort of egoless public service. Mm -hmm. And also my parents always talked about, you know, they were at like WNYC in the 80s, like Allen Ginsberg was always coming by. <laughs> you know, my mom met every major contemporary composer. Yeah. And they were, you know, smoking cigarettes and cutting tape. Like right. they were having the best time. So not only was radio like beautiful and useful, it was cool. Mm -hmm. And the, be the best part was my parents were like, oh yeah, that's a job. Like, that's a job you can do. Yeah. So that was the thing. It was like, okay, this is like cool. It's a moral good. It's it's great. And you can, it's a valid job. Like, well, I'll do that. You know, I'm a Nepo baby. I'm like, sure, this is great. <laughs> and I, I love it. Um, but then, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this too. I just think when people equate podcasting and radio and say they're the same, like, no, no, no. They could not be more different. I mean, podcasting in many ways, very good and like, kind of weird is not the same thing as radio and sort of not yeah. what I expected. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you felt that. You feel that too. I do. And I often feel, I, I think I hadn't thought about this until you said that, but um, for me, there is a bit of an uncanny valley between the two of them. Totally. That I feel like if I'm trying to do anything in my own work, it's um, navigate that gap. Um, mm. because I am forever craving that feeling of not just listening to baseball games with my dad, but being up late at night, driving somewhere and having some voice in the darkness, talk about something that you have no connection to and somehow feel like it is plucking the, the very deepest strings of your heart. Mm -hmm. um, podcasting can't replicate that experience. It can't. Um, it can't. But and it can't surprise you it, in the way that radio can. It can't surprise you. This makes me want to ask you. Actually, uh, I read an interview with you where you you named some podcasts that were very transformational for you, and I wonder if you could. Uh, I don't know if these, this would still be your list. Um, so please feel free to say if it's not. But you cited specifically uh, Love and Radio, Reply All, and the Sharon Mashihi piece, uh, Man Chubam, um, oh, yeah. and S-Town, I believe you, um, oh, yeah. you also cited. 
I wonder if you could say for you what it was about those specifically or generally that made you feel like podcasting was doing something that radio could not do. Totally. Well, I mean, yeah, the first time I ever like got into podcasts, it was Love and Radio. Mm-hmm. And were you a big Love and Radio fan? And that show changed my entire life. Exactly. Yeah. Game changer. Mm-hmm. And you remember that episode, The Wisdom of Jay Thunderbolt? Yes, I yeah, do. Where the, the subject pulls a gun mm-hmm. on the interviewer. Yeah. And you're just like, I have never... I mean, that was like our Citizen Kane. It was just like, <laughs> what? It's like, you can do this? Like, that's bananas. And like, he would do interviews with people he had clearly just slept with, you know, like interviews in restaurants mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. music, blaring, just like, mm-hmm. oh my God, mm-hmm. no rules. It just felt like podcasting was like pirate radio. It was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even know if I wanted to get into it. Honestly, I got into podcasting because I couldn't get any jobs in radio. Sure. But that's what made me a podcast listener. And I'm sure you were of this ilk too. It felt really fun in the days when you'd turn to someone and be like, do you know what podcasts are? And they'd be like, yeah. And then you'd talk about yeah. like love and radio and the memory palace and like mm-hmm. 99% invisible. Right, and just, right. it felt like a subculture. It was so... Cool. And then if you like knew someone, if you, if you saw someone on the street wearing like a podcast shirt, it felt like, um, being into like a scene. It was amazing. Yeah. It was like you had a, a, a secret emotional handshake with that person. Yeah. And then when you could initiate someone else and you're like, check this out and they like get it. And then they fell all the way down the rabbit hole and discovered like, you know, there were like 12 podcasts at the time. <laughs> and you like listen to all of them. You're like, ah, it was, it was great. You're putting your finger on something that I feel like, I don't know, is like a a personal soapbox of mine, which is that um, everybody is always wondering what the correct framework for talking about podcasting is. And I always feel it's more similar to music than it is to journalism or even movies or, or TV shows or books or magazines, whatever else you would compare it to, because people's relationship with their favorite shows, at least if you came of podcast age, around the same time as it seems like you and I did, where it was like discovering a band that was singing about the things that you thought only you felt um, in a style that really resonated with you. And it it made, it's the answer to the question so many like of the uninitiated I think have about podcasts, which is like, but sometimes the recording quality isn't good or um, I don't like that person's voice, which is when you have a favorite band, those are, of course, the things you love about that band. It is, it is those things that connect you to them because they're like, their imperfections are my imperfections. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're interested in exploring this same space. But I really like what you just described about the difference between being drawn to something like Love and Radio versus growing up with parents who worked in public radio because I think the phrase you used to describe public radio was that it was this act of uh, like benevolent public service. Yes. And you're talking about how love and radio was a delivery mechanism for something very different than that. You nailed it. You nailed it. And that's the thing about podcasting is that the, the, it's the direction is different. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. this selfless giving. Right. It is more of a like, Hey, look at me. You know, that you're, you it, it is a bit more of an artistic impulse. You know, you yeah. know, you're like, I need to say something. 
but you're not speaking to a broad general audience who might tune in in their car. You're speaking to your audience, like right. your perceived self-selecting audience. And you're not necessarily doing it for any sort of public good. And I guess that was the thing that was kind of shocking was to be like, why is Nick Vanderkolk doing this? You know, I feel like that was the question we all had listening yeah. to Love and Radio. Like, what? How does he continue to do this mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. weird shit? Yeah. And um, so that's the thing about podcasting that makes me a little uncomfortable. And I think it relates to your earlier question about when you insert yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I love the anonymity of radio and I think there's more intimacy, like the less you know about someone and yet at the same time, it feels truer to the medium of podcasting to divulge a little bit. And I feel like the people like you and me who sort of have one foot in radio world and one foot in podcast world are constantly battling with these things. Like obviously it manifests in a different style, like podcast style and radio style as you know, obviously there's like people keep trying to merge them, but they are fundamentally different. Yeah. And one is like, are you are you giving to a general audience or are you asking a specific audience to come to you? Yes. Like to me, I think that's the difference between radio and podcasting. Plenty more to come with Avery Truffleman on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. said that working at, is it WESU? Yeah. Um, was really transformative for you. So tell me what you found there. The thing I liked about Wesleyan's radio station was it was not only students. It was students and community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was, um, you know, you have like people who live in Middletown, Connecticut, who like have had long running shows I remember like listening to the radio station and being like, oh, this is weird. Like they had NPR <laughs> shows and then they had like real, they, I mean, it is, it was like an amazing bunch of people. There was like a, um, a former nun who had a show called Reasonably Catholic. <laughs> and there was this uh, guy who had a show about being an alien that um, <laughs> like people would call in and be like, hey man, I'm an alien too. Like, it was awesome. I was just like, this is so sick. And <laughs> <laughs> it strikes me, you just described, I think, the answer to, better than I could ever have done, why podcasts can never be radio. Like you can't, no, those, those shows no, are not. not, those shows are incredible and you yeah. can't make those as podcasts. You can't, you can't make those and you're never going to like turn on your car and be like, whoa, what? you know, you're never going to be like, whoa, what's this? Yeah. Wasn't expecting this to get delivered to my ear. You yeah. know what I mean? Like radio is amazing. And so it was like this amazing crew of people. And I just took all my classes pass fail and spent like most of the time at the radio station. And it's just like, you could play whatever records you wanted. You could hang out. You could like meet people again, sort of like escaping the myopic world of school. It was 
awesome. Mm-hmm. And then when we do pledge drive time, it's like pledge drive time. Like, let's like get together. And, you know, it felt like a movie every time. Like, let's, let's do it for the station. And it was awesome. It was so great. And, um, it, and also I love that you could open up the phone lines and just be like, tell me what you think. And yeah. then people would call in because people actually listened and, it was it was awesome. It was so cool. And like mixing a board was so fun. Yeah. It was like a yeah. nice culture. Did you do college radio? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was and similar to you, it was something where I went there thinking, well, this will be complementary to mm. my my very serious academic studies. And actually this is the only part of this entire beautiful campus I want to be in. It's yep. the part with no windows. Yep. <laughs> um <laughs> And stained couches and yes. uh, racks and racks and racks of CDs and a seemingly limitless palette to express something into the yes. ether. Um, yes. So did you have your own show? What did, what did your time there look like? Uh, well, I had like music shows, you mm-hmm. know, to mm-hmm. start out. And then my senior year, I did a show where I interviewed kind of whoever I wanted, but it was like an interview show. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed professors and I interviewed people who were visiting and I would record them and then I would edit them on, you know, I think I had like an H1N, like a very Uh cheap Uh recorder that I like borrowed from the station. And then I would edit them in GarageBand and play them. And it was like a 30 minute long show. And I remember just like on top of my homework being like, this is the most important thing. Like, edit, yeah. and you, you know, when you like first realize how fun editing is and you like trance out and you're just like, I'm making yeah. this thing. It, it was so fun. Just so many memories of like staying up all night, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. using the computer in the radio station to be like, oh my, I'm work, working on my show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then two things happened with that. One was that I interviewed this professor who was visiting, who was talking about local like the local indigenous tribes in Middletown. And it turns out he's actually like very established and it's and it was very hard to get. So actually a professor started assigning that episode I made, not because like I did such a good job, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No. This recording was very valuable. It's like, oh shit. And people would turn to me and be like, yeah, we listened to your, like, <laughs> we listened to this recording. It wasn't like a podcast yet, but like we were listening to this recording of yeah. your radio show in class. <laughs> which is bananas. Like I was still a student. I was Mm -hmm. like, what? And then, so that was cool. Um, And then the other thing that happened was the very first time that I played my show, I had also been, my friends were directing the vagina monologues Uh and they asked me to audition. And I, to my great surprise, got a, a, a role in the vagina monologues. And I don't know if you remember that GarageBand used to do this, but when you record something, it like puts it in a file with everything else you've recorded. (laughs) And it turns out I'd recorded my vagina monologue monologue to like remember it. Uh So on the very uh, end of the broadcast, on the very first day, if you were listening in central Connecticut on that like (laughs) cold night in 2013, you would hear like, you're listening to WSU 88.1 FM Middletown. I'm Avery Truffleman. Thanks for listening beat i love vaginas <laughs> I was like, oh my god i'll never work in radio 
<laughs> and the phone started ringing. People were like, hey, man, I like vaginas too. It was like mortifying. Right. I'll never work in radio slash I just did the thing that only radio can do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The chaos. Yeah. The element of chaos. Yeah. Don't you miss it? I do. I do. But before we move off of this, one thing I know that you have been asked about a lot, but um, that I would love to ask you about is you also have an extraordinary voice. And Thank you. did you, did, did people react to your voice just as a voice at this time? Um, and was that ever- like when I was in school? Yeah. No. They never did. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, you know how like part of being hot is just deciding that you're hot. <laughs> you know, I just feel like in the same way that we're like, oh, that NPR name is so great because they're like on NPR. Yeah. I just feel like once you're like, I am a radio person, I have a radio voice, you sort of start to have a radio voice. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, like the thing that I always talk about is there's like this drop that happens like your voice just gets deeper when you're like, I'm a radio person yeah, now. And yeah. you can hear it. My favorite, favorite, favorite thing is to listen to old episodes of 99% Invisible. <laughs> you hear Roman talking and then you hear the ads cut in and he's like, betterhelp.com. <laughs> like, now back to the show. It's like, you know, he's like, he's like so excited and squeaky. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning. And as he gets more comfortable in mic, he gets into like Roman Mars. Yes. So I think I've sort of like, as one does, leaned into it. But I don't, I don't know if anyone like thought about it mm-hmm. uh, before. Okay. Well, th- this act, this anticipates my next question for you, which is, so then you, you do, um, I know this is a little bit one, two, skip a few, but you end up mm-hmm. at 99% invisible um, first as an intern. And then as like the third full-time producer, if I'm not mistaken, second. One of the first. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and you, I listened to the your, the first story you did about the magazine ah. covers. Um, Isn't that funny? I just listened to that the other day. I was like, damn, this is like magazines aren't really a thing anymore. It's like, that is so weird that it was 10 years ago. Yeah. And this is like obsolete. Yes. That is one of the many fascinating parts of listening to it. Um, but it's also fascinating to listen to having been a fan of your work for a long time since you did that to go back and listen to what I am assuming was one of the first pieces that like that that you narrated. It was the first. It was the first. Okay, okay. So how did you think about, or did you think about your character or presence as a narrator when you, when you sat down to do it? Did you think, okay, I'm telling this story to Roman or I'm telling it to myself. How did you, how did you approach that? Well, the way we always structured 99PI that I always loved was it was always like guest talks to reporter, reporter talks to Roman, Roman talks to audience was always sort of the way we structured it. And I think Roman structured that very intentionally, you know, back when he was the only one making the show, um, it was just easier to be like, I'm the only, instead of asking someone to record stuff to say to the audience, he was like, I'm just going to be the one who talks to the audience. Uh, So it made his tracking easier. It was really out of necessity. So it it was very much sticking to that structure. And also at the time, and 
I don't want to say not anymore, but you know, like I started by like wanting to be Roman Mars and copying Uh Roman Mars. And also I was like working on his show and I was like, I better like be, be like Roman. Uh So, Uh um, yeah, I was definitely talking to Roman, but I was also definitely talking like Roman Uh Uh or trying to. So one of the things that's interesting to me about listening to that story is obviously we don't yet hear the Avery that I associate with the Avery that narrates stories in my ears now, which is this very warm, very wry, very curious, um, joking sometimes, self-inquisitive. There are all of these very strong character notes to your storytelling persona. Wow, thank you. I had no idea. Oh, well, I mean, so cool. this is, you know, this is my own, my own perception. No, Others may, may associate different adjectives with your, with your presence. But um, to me, it is so, and, and I find it to be consistent, you know, across 99PI or Nice Try or The Cut. Um, and I'm curious, even if those specific adjectives are not conscious things, what has it been like for you to take a journey towards... Uh, maybe away from how do I talk kind of like Roman to do you consciously think now I'm just talking like Avery? Is that just something that is a byproduct of doing this so many times? What, what has that uh, journey towards your, your current presence as host been? I don't know how anyone can be a host without having been a producer, because I think the only way that I have sort of a handle on my voice I've had to listen to myself so many times, you know, I've had to like cut my own tape, listen to my own tracks. I still hate it. You know, (laughs) I'm always like, surely this will get better in time and I will like get used to hearing myself. No, it doesn't at all. Although now I think I've gotten a little bit, it's not as like cringe now. Like now I can start to see my narration as an instrument. I can be a little bit more dispassionate about it. Uh Like, oh, tweak that. Uh Like Uh back to the performance thing. Be like, oh, I can like give notes on my voice in a way that I think would make me be like, oh my God, no, it's like in the past. But um, no, I mean, Roman himself, I mean, again, like Roman's my mentor. I have like lots of bon mots and things I've learned from Roman, but Roman always said that innovation is imitation plus lack of talent. You know, you like start by wanting to be someone else and you can't be someone else. You have to be yourself. So I do think it had to start from somewhere. And then I think it was just years of like listening to my own interviews and my own voice and being like, how would I say this? And then also something that I'm sure you've heard me say in other interviews, a key part of the way that I write is practicing telling the story. Like I will tell the story to people and I will notice what I say to another human. And I will notice if they're confused, how I clarify it. And so I, and I'm like listening to myself talk and being like, okay, noted. Like that way I said that was way more clear. And I think this is natural to any degree, any story that you tell over and over again, you know, you start to be like, I've got my bit, you know, like, (laughs) let me do the thing. Let me tell my story. So I like to sort of practice it in front of other people before I like go and do it alone in a room and imitate my own speaking patterns in, in that way. Okay. I'm really glad you brought this up because this, I have some, some sort of craft questions for you that I'm, I'm taking in part from this talk that you've given abandon your plans. Oh yeah. Um, 
And one of the things that is so remarkable to me about what you say in this talk is the amount of your process that is going to parties, talking to people, and trying out, saying, here's what I'm working on. Does this spark anything? I have a bunch of questions about this, but I think the biggest one is, to me, implicit in that is this sense that you're always sort of working. Like, yes. <laughs> is that, and, and do you feel any tension with that? About like never, never not working? Yeah. I mean, I don't mind it. I feel, <laughs> okay. Do I get tired? Yeah. Like I'm tired all the time. Mm-hmm. But um, I... I'm so lucky, you know, it's like such an amazing life and it brings me so close. I mean, there was this time when people get mad at me and be like, you can't travel anywhere without working. And recently my, my boyfriend's a film producer and he was um, making a movie in Budapest. And so I spent like a, three weeks in Budapest. And when I was there, I was like, I'm not going to do a story. I'm not going to do a story. I'm just going like, to be here in Budapest. But I was like, why wouldn't you do a story? Yeah. Like, and then I did do a story. Like I, I found something really interesting to talk about and it led me into people's homes. It led me into people's lives. It gave me an in, a greater insight into the, like the current politics of Hungary, which obviously, you know, not a lot of people are very forthcoming about. Mm-hmm. And if you're both like looking the same direction and you're like, tell me about this other thing. Cause I had tried, I tried to be like, what do you think of Victor Orban? And obviously no one answered that <laughs> question. But when I, um, you know, like found another way in people really opened up mm-hmm. and, you know, and obviously when you do a story, it's not only the story. Like I wanted some books to do the story and I called you know, this small press in Budapest. And they were like, okay, you have to like meet us in the park and like, we'll give you the book. And then in the park was this like swap meet. And, you know, we like, my boyfriend and I met all these people. We were like, whoa, we've just discovered like another side of Budapest from doing this story. And the nice thing is it's not just being a tourist, you know, you're like really trying to understand. And yeah, so I'm like never not working, but it's always just like making the world so much richer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I I worried. I was like, am I a workaholic? But um, I don't think it's the only thing that gives my life meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have I have a lot of friends who don't listen to podcasts and don't know what I do. I just think, in a deep way, it gives my life meaning. Like it's mm-hmm. not my mm-hmm. life. It's just like having these, these conversations makes it a richer world. Yeah. And it makes me think of the thing you say in your, in your, again, in your work at talk that you do all this work to prepare for the interview. Um, I think you say like, you know, I like four pages of typewritten notes. I've read all the books and then you fold it up and you put it away and you don't look at it while you're talking to the person. Um, I mean, in many ways, I think that is, that's the trick to the whole thing. I guess that's the ritual. And it's funny because mm-hmm, lately mm-hmm. I've had a number of interviews where I haven't had as much time to prepare. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I was like, oh, oh my God, I could only read a few chapters of your book. You know, yeah. I couldn't read the whole thing. Or like I read your book, but I didn't have the time to like synthesize it, you know, type out all the notes, like all these things that I would normally pride myself on. And it's been a little horrifying to be like, oh my God, I don't need that. You know, <laughs> um, like there's something. What was all that I time that for? <laughs> I, well, it's funny. I don't want to say that I don't, but it's like, you don't always need that. Yeah. And that sometimes the artistic ritual is like superstition. Last question is, do you have a mantra? Something you tell yourself when the going gets tough? Things sort of take the time they take. Even Mm. in days where it's like, oh, why aren't you writing? You should be writing. It's like, it's not ready yet. It needed a day. Mm -hmm. Or um, just like, it happens the way it's supposed to happen. Or like, oh, you wrote that whole draft just so you could figure some ideas out and then you deleted it. Like, yeah. It had to happen. You got, you needed those ideas out. Like it's all, I guess that's the nice thing about never not working. You're like, well, it's all part of the process. There's no like productivity or unproductivity. It's mm-hmm. just like happening. Right, right. Well, I think somebody asked you uh, in one of these Q&As that I watched, how do you like emotionally reckon with the fact that you gather hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of tape? And then at the end, it's just this 30 minute thing. Like what about all that other tape? And I might be misremembering this, but I feel like the way you answered that question was like, oh, well, uh, I guess I don't think about it because the story ends up being what the story's supposed to be and that's what it was all for. And you kind of hear the person be like, what? Uh, oh, uh. like it, <laughs> it kind of melts their brain a little bit. Um, but it feels related to, to what you were just saying. Yeah, that- totally. And it's like, I had fun. I like loved, I don't, it's not like any of those were like a waste, you know, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed every single one of those minutes. Mm-hmm. And then like, I got to keep the ones that work in the story. Avery, this has been uh, a, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing thank all of this. Thank you. Thank you so much for all your thoughtful questions. It's really beautiful. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Avery Truffleman for joining me on the show today. If you have not already, please check out Avery's marvelous work. Uh, I have links in the show notes, but you can also just search in your podcast player for articles of interest, 99% Invisible, Nice Try, and The Cut. If you have thoughts on anything you've heard on any of our episodes, please drop me a line. Midnight at WALT.FM is the email address. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. And until then, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. (laughs) 